CD2 As a matter of fact, said the senior wrangler, always ready with a handy fact, you can get a scorpion to shut up, said the arch-chancellor. But we can't have an undead wizard wandering around, said the dean. There's no telling what he might take it into his head to do. We've got to put a stop to him, for his own good. That's right, said Ridcully, for his own good. Shouldn't be too hard. There must be dozens of ways to deal with an undead. Garlic, said the senior wrangler flatly. Undead don't like garlic. Don't blame him. Can't stand the stuff, said the dean. Undead! Undead! said the bursar, pointing an accusing finger. They ignored him. Yes, and then there's sacred items, said the senior wrangler. Your basic undead crumbles into dust as soon as look at them. And they don't like daylight. And if the worst comes to the worst, you bury them at a crossroads. That's sure fire, that is. And you stick a stake into them to make sure they don't get up again. With garlic on it, said the bursar. Well, yes, I, I suppose you could put garlic on it, the senior wrangler conceded reluctantly. I don't think you should put garlic on a good steak, said the dean. Just a little oil and seasoning. Red pepper is nice, said the lecturer in recent runes happily. Shut up, said the arch-chancellor. Plop. The cupboard door's hinges finally gave way, spilling its contents into the room. Sergeant Colon of the Ankh-Morpork City Guard was on duty. He was guarding the Brass Bridge, the main link between Ankh and Morpork, from theft. When it came to crime prevention, Sergeant Colon found it safest to think big. There was a school of thought that believed the best way to get recognised as a keen guardian of the law in Ankh-Morpork would be to patrol the streets and alleys, bribe informants, follow suspects and so on. Sergeant Colon played truant from this particular school, not, he would hasten to say, because trying to keep down crime in Ankh-Morpork was like trying to keep down salt in the sea, and the only recognition any keen guardian of the law was likely to get was the sort that goes, Hey, that body in the gutter, isn't that old Sergeant Colon? But because the modern go-ahead intelligent law officer ought to be always one jump ahead of the contemporary criminal, one day someone was bound to try and steal the brass bridge. And then they'd find Sergeant Colon right there, waiting for them. In the meantime, it offered a quiet place out of the wind where he could have a relaxing smoke and probably not see anything that would upset him. He leaned with his elbows on the parapet, wondering vaguely about life. A figure stumbled out of the mist. Sergeant Colon recognised the familiar pointy hat of a wizard. "'Good evening, officer,' its wearer croaked. "'Morning, Your Honour. "'Would you be kind enough to help me up onto the parapet, officer?' Sergeant Colon hesitated. But the chap was a wizard. A man could get into serious trouble not helping wizards. Trying out some new magic, Your Honour, he said brightly, helping the skinny but surprisingly heavy body up onto the crumbling stonework. No. Windlepoons stepped off the bridge. There was a squelch. It is true that the undead cannot cross running water. However, the naturally turbid river Ankh, already heavy with the mud of the plains, does not, after having passed through the city, population one million, necessarily qualify under the term running, or for that matter, water. Sergeant Colon looked down as the waters of the Ankh closed again slowly. Those wizards, always up to something.
He watched for a while. After several minutes, there was a disturbance in the scum and debris near the base of one of the pillars of the bridge, where a flight of greasy stairs led down to the water. A pointy hat appeared. Sergeant Colon heard the wizard slowly climb the stairs, swearing under his breath. Windlepoons reached the top of the bridge again. He was soaked. You want to go and get changed? Sergeant Colon volunteered. You could catch a death standing round like that. <laughs> get your feet in front of a roaring fire. That's what I do. <laughs> Sergeant Colon looked at Windlepoons in his own private puddle. You've been trying some special kind of underwater magic, Your Honor? He ventured. Not exactly, officer. I've always wondered about what it's like under the water, said Sergeant Colon encouragingly. The mysteries of the deep, strange and wonderful creatures. My mum told me a tale once about this little boy what turned into a mermaid. Well, not a mermaid, and he had all these adventures under the sea. His voice drained away under Windle Poon's dreadful stare. It's boring, said Windle. He turned and stared to lurch away into the mist. Very, very boring. Very boring indeed. Sergeant Colon was left alone. He lit a fresh cigarette with a trembling hand and started to walk hurriedly towards the watch headquarters. That face, he told himself, and those eyes. Just like, what's the name? Who's that bloody dwarf who runs the delicatessen on Cable Street? Sergeant. Colon froze. Then he looked down. A face was staring up at him from ground level. When he'd got a grip on himself, he made out the sharp features of his old friend, cut-me-own-throat Dibbler the Discworld's walking, talking argument in favour of the theory that mankind had descended from a species of rodent. C.M.O.T. Dibbler liked to describe himself as a merchant adventurer. Everyone else liked to describe him as an itinerant peddler whose money-making schemes were always let down by some small but vital flaw, such as trying to sell things he didn't own, or which didn't work, or sometimes didn't even exist. Fairy gold is well known to evaporate by morning, but it was a reinforced concrete slab by comparison to some of Throat's merchandise. He was standing at the bottom of some steps that led down to one of Ark Morpork's countless cellars. Hello, Throat. Would you step down here a minute, Fred? I could use a bit of legal aid. Got a problem, Throat? Dibbler scratched his nose. Well, Fred, is it a crime to be given something. I mean, without you knowing it. Someone been giving you things, Throat? Throat nodded. Dunno. You know I keep merchandise down here, he said. Yeah. You see, I'll just come down to do a bit of stock-taking, and... He waved a hand helplessly. Well, take a look. He opened the cellar door. In the darkness... Something went plop. Windle Poons lurched aimlessly along a dark alley in the shades, arms extended in front of him, hands hanging down at the wrists. He didn't know why. It just seemed the right way to go about it. Jumping off a building? No, that wouldn't work either. It was hard enough to walk as it was, and two broken legs wouldn't help. Poison? He imagined it would be like having a very bad stomach ache. Noose? Hanging around would probably be more boring than sitting on the bottom of the river. He reached a noisome courtyard where several alleys met. Rats scampered away from him. A cat screeched and scurried off over the rooftops. 
As he stood wondering where he was, why he was, and what ought to happen next, he felt the point of a knife against his backbone. OK, Grandad, said a voice behind him. It's your money or your life. In the darkness, Windlepoon's mouth formed a horrible grin. I'm not playing about, old man, said the voice. Are you thieves, Guild? said Windle, without turning round. No, we're freelancers. Come on, let's see the colour of your money. Haven't got any, said Windle. He turned around. There were two more muggers behind him. Ye gods, look at his eyes, said one of them. Windle raised his arms above his head. Ooh, he moaned. The muggers backed away. Unfortunately, there was a wall behind them. They flattened themselves against it. Ooh, bugger off! Ooh, said Windle, who hadn't realised that the only way of escape lay through him. He rolled his eyes for better effect. Maddened by terror, the would-be attackers dived under his arms, but not before one of them had sunk his knife up to the hilt in Windle's pigeon chest. He looked down at it. Hey, that was my best robe, he said. I wanted to be buried in it. Will you look at it? You know how difficult it is to darn silk. Come back here this since Look at it, right where it shows. He listened. There was no sound but the distant and retreating scurry of footsteps. Windlepoons removed the knife. Could have killed me, he muttered, tossing it away. In the cellar, Sergeant Colon picked up one of the objects that lay in huge drifts on the floor. There must be thousands of them, said Throat behind him. What I want to know is who put them there. Although not common on the Discworld, there are indeed such things as anti-crimes, in accordance with the fundamental law that everything in the multiverse has an opposite. They are obviously rare. Merely giving someone something is not the opposite of robbery, to be an anti-crime, it has to be done in such a way as to cause outrage and or humiliation to the victim. So there is breaking and decorating, proffering with embarrassment, as in most retirement presentations, and whitemailing, as in threatening to reveal to his enemies a mobster's secret donations, for example, to charity. Anti-crimes have never really caught on. Sergeant Colon turned the object round and round in his hands. Never seen one of these before, he said. He gave it a shake. His face lit up. Pretty, ain't they? The door was locked and everything, said Throat. And I'm paid up with the Thieves' Guild. Colon shook the thing again. Nice, he said. Fred! Colon, fascinated, watched the little snowflakes fall inside the tiny glass globe. Hmm? What am I supposed to do? Dunno. I suppose they're yours, Throat. Can't imagine why anyone would want to get rid of him, though. He turned towards the door. Throat stepped into his path. Then that'll be twelve pence, he said smoothly. What? For the one you just put in your pocket, Fred. Colon fished the globe out of his pocket. Come on, he protested. You just found them here. They didn't cost you a penny. Yes, but there's the storage, uh, packing, uh, handling... Tuppence, said Colon desperately. Tenpence. Threepence. Sevenpence, and that's cutting my own throat, mark you. Done, said the sergeant reluctantly. He gave the globe another shake. Nice, aren't they? He said. Worth every penny, said Dibbler. He rubbed his hands together, hopefully. 
Should sell like hotcakes, he said, picking up a handful and shoving them into a box. He locked the door behind them when they left. In the darkness, something went plop. Ankh-Morpork has always had a fine tradition of welcoming people of all races, colours and shapes if they have money to spend and a return ticket. According to the Guild of Merchants' famous publication Welcome to Ankh-Morpork, City of One Thousand Surprises, you, the visitor, will be assured of a warm welcome in the countless inns and hostelries of this ancient city where many specialise in catering for the taste of guest from distant part. So if you, a man, troll, dwarf, goblin or gnome, Ankh-Morpork will raise your glass convivial and say, Cheer! Here looking you, kid. Up you bottom. Windle Poons didn't know where Undead went for a good time. All he knew, and he knew it for a certainty, was that if they could have a good time anywhere, then they could probably have it in Ankh-Morpork. His laboured footsteps led him deeper into the shades. Only they weren't so laboured now. For more than a century, Windle Poons had lived inside the walls of Unseen University. In terms of accumulated years, he may have lived a long time. In terms of experience, he was about thirteen. He was seeing, hearing and smelling things he'd never seen, heard or smelled before. The Shades was the oldest part of the city. If you could do a sort of relief map of sinfulness, wickedness and all-round immorality, rather like those representations of the gravitational field around a black hole, then even in Ankh-Morpork the Shades would be represented by a shaft. In fact, the Shades was remarkably like the aforesaid well-known astronomical phenomenon. It had a certain strong attraction. No light escaped from it, and it could indeed become a gateway to another world. The next one. The Shades was a city within a city. The streets were thronged. Muffled figures slunk past on errands of their own. Strange music wound up from sunken stairwells. So did sharp and exciting smells. Poons passed goblin delicatessens and dwarf bars, from which came the sound of singing and fighting, which dwarfs traditionally did at the same time. And there were trolls moving through the crowds like... like big people moving among little people. They weren't shambling either. Windle had hitherto seen trolls only in the more select parts of the city, i.e. everywhere outside the shades, where they moved with exaggerated caution in case they accidentally clubbed someone to death and ate them. In the shades they strode unafraid, heads held so high they very nearly rose above their shoulder blades. Windle Poons wandered through the crowds like a random shot on a pinball table. Here a blast of smoky sound from a bar spun him back into the street, there a discreet doorway promising unusual and forbidden delights attracted him like a magnet. Windle Poons's life hadn't included even very many usual and approved delights. He wasn't even certain what they were. Some sketches outside one pink-lit, inviting doorway left him even more mystified but incredibly anxious to learn. He turned around and around in pleased astonishment. This place, only ten minutes walk or fifteen minutes lurch from the university, and he'd never known it was there. All these people, all this noise, all this life. Several people of various shapes and species jostled him. One or two started to say something, shut their mouths quickly and hurried off. They were thinking, his eyes, like gimlets. And then a voice from the shadows said, Hello, big boy, you want a nice time? Oh, yes, said Windlepoons, lost in wonder. Oh, yes, yes, yes. He turned around. Bloody hell! There was the sound of someone hurrying away down an alley. 
Wendell's face fell. Life, obviously, was only for the living. Perhaps this back-to-your-body business had been a mistake after all. He'd been a fool to think otherwise. He turned, and hardly bothering to keep his own heart beating, went back to the university. Wendell trudged across the quad to the Great Hall. The Arch-Chancellor would know what to do. There he is. It's him. Get him! Wendell's train of thought ran over a cliff. He looked around at five red, worried, and above all, familiar faces. Oh, hello, Dean, he said unhappily. And is that the senior wrangler? Oh, and the Arch-Chancellor. This is... Grab his arm. Don't look at his eyes. Grab his other arm. This is for your own good, Wendell. It's not Wendell. It's a creature of the night. I assure you, I... Have you got his legs? Grab his leg! Grab his other leg! Have you grabbed everything? roared the Arch-Chancellor. The wizards nodded. Mustrum Ridcully reached into the massive recesses of his robe. Right, fiend in human shape, he growled. What do you think of this, then, eh? Aha! Windle squinted at the small object that was thrust triumphantly under his nose. Well, um, he said diffidently, I'd say... Yes, the smell is very distinctive, isn't it? Yes, uh, yes, quite definitely. Allium sativum, uh, the common domestic garlic, yes? The wizards stared at him. They stared at the little white clove. They stared at Windle again. I am right, aren't I? He said, and made an attempt at a smile. Um, said the Arch-Chancellor. Yes, yes, that's right. Ridcully cast around for something to add. Mm, well done, he said. Thank you for trying, said Windle. I really appreciate it. He stepped forward. The wizards might as well have tried to hold back a glacier. And now I'm going to have a lie down, he said. It's been a long day. He lurched into the building and creaked along the corridors until he reached his room. Someone else seemed to have moved some of their stuff into it, but Windle dealt with that by simply picking it all up in one sweep of his arms and throwing it out into the corridor. Then he lay down on the bed. Sleep. Well, he was tired. That was a start. But sleeping meant letting go of control, and he wasn't too certain that all the systems were fully functional yet. Anyway, when you got right down to it, did he have to sleep at all? After all, he was dead. That was supposed to be just like sleeping, only even more so. They said that dying was just like going to sleep, although, of course, if you weren't careful, bits of you could rot and drop off. What were you supposed to do when you slept, anyway? Dreaming. Wasn't that all to do with sorting out your memories or something? How did you go about it? He stared at the ceiling. I never thought being dead would be so much trouble, he said aloud. After a while, a faint but insistent squeaking noise made him turn his head. Over the fireplace was an ornamental candlestick fixed to a bracket on the wall. It was such a familiar piece of furniture that Windle hadn't really seen it for fifty years. It was coming unscrewed. It spun around slowly, squeaking once a turn. After half a dozen turns it fell off and clattered to the floor. Inexplicable phenomena were not in themselves unusual on the Discworld. It was just that they normally had more point, or at least were a bit more interesting. Rains of fish, for example, were so common in the little landlocked village of pine dressers that it had a flourishing smoking, canning and kipper-filleting industry. And in the mountain regions of Sirit, many sheep left out in the fields all night would be found in the morning to be facing the other way without the apparent intervention of any human agency.
Nothing else seemed to be about to move. Windle relaxed and went back to organising his memories. There was stuff in there he'd completely forgotten about. There was a brief whispering outside, and then the door burst open. Get his legs! Get his legs! Hold his arms! Windle tried to sit up. Oh, hello, everyone, he said. What's the matter? The Arch-Chancellor, standing at the foot of the bed, fumbled in a sack and produced a large, heavy object. He held it aloft. Aha! he said. Windle peered at it. Yes, he said, helpfully. Aha! said the Arch-Chancellor again, but with slightly less conviction. It's a symbolic, double-handed axe from the cult of blind Eo, said Windle. The Arch-Chancellor gave him a blank look. Eh, yes, he said. That's right. He threw it over his shoulder, almost removing the Dean's left ear, and fished in the sack again. Aha! That's a rather fine example of the mystic tooth of Offler the Crocodile God, said Windle. Aha! And that's, uh, let me see now, yes, that's the matched set of sacred flying ducks of Ordpaw the Tasteless. I say this is fun. Aha! That's, uh, don't tell me, don't tell me, it's the holy linglong of the notorious Sooty cult, isn't it? Aha! Uh-huh. I think that's one of the three-headed fish of the Hawanda three-headed fish religion, said Windle. Oh, this is ridiculous, said the Arch-Chancellor, dropping the fish. The wizards sagged. Religious objects weren't such a surefire undead cure after all. I'm really sorry to be such a nuisance, said Windle. The dean suddenly brightened up. Daylight, he said excitedly. That'll do the trick. Get the curtain. Get the other curtain. One, two, three, now! Windle blinked in the invasive sunlight. The wizards held their breath. I'm sorry, he said. It doesn't seem to work. They sagged again. Don't you feel anything, said Ridcully. No sensation of crumbling into dust and blowing away, said the senior wrangler, hopefully. My nose tends to peel if I'm out in the sun too long, said Windle. I don't know if that's any help. He tried to smile. The wizards looked at one another and shrugged. Get out, said the Arch-Chancellor. They trooped out. Ridcully followed them. He paused at the door and waved a finger at Windle. This uncooperative attitude, Windle, is not doing you any good, he said and slammed the door behind him. After a few seconds, the four screws holding the door handle very slowly unscrewed themselves. They rose up and orbited near the ceiling for a while and then fell. Windle thought about this for a while. Memories. He had lots of them. One hundred and thirty years of memories. When he was alive, he hadn't been able to remember one hundredth of the things he knew, but now he was dead, his mind uncluttered with everything except the single silver thread of his thoughts. He could feel them all there. Everything he'd ever read, everything he'd ever seen, everything he'd ever heard, all there, ranged in ranks. Nothing forgotten, everything in its place. Three inexplicable phenomena in one day. Four, if you included the fact of his continued existence. That was really inexplicable. It needed explicating. Well, that was someone else's problem. Everything was someone else's problem now. The wizards crouched outside the door of Windle's room. Got everything, said Ridcully. 
Why can't we get some of the servants to do it? muttered the senior wrangler. It's undignified. Because I want it done properly and, and, and with dignity, snapped the Arch-Chancellor. If anyone's going to bury a wizard at a crossroads with a stake hammered through him, then wizards ought to do it. After all, we're, we're his friends. What is this thing, anyway? said the dean, inspecting the implement in his hands. It's called a shovel, said the senior wrangler. I've seen the gardeners use them. You stick the sharp end in the ground, and then, then it gets a bit technical. Ridcully squinted through the keyhole. He's lying down again, he said. He got up, brushing the dust off his knees, and grasped the door handle. Right, he said. Take your time from me. One, two... Modo, the gardener, was trundling a barrow load of hedge trimmings to a bonfire behind the high-energy magic research building when about half a dozen wizards went past at, for wizards, high speed. Windlepoons was being borne aloft between them. Modo heard him say... Really, Arch-Chancellor, are you quite sure this one will work? We've got your best interests at heart, said Ridcully. I'm sure, but... We'll soon have you feeling your old self again, said the bursar. No, we won't, hissed the dean. That's the whole point. We'll soon have you not feeling your old self again. That's the whole point, stuttered the bursar as they rounded the corner. Modo picked up the handles of the barrow again and pushed it thoughtfully towards the secluded area where he kept his bonfire, his compost heaps, his leaf mould pile and the little shed he sat in when it rained. He used to be assistant gardener at the palace, but this job was a lot more interesting. You really got to see life. Ankh Morpork society is street society. There is always something interesting going on. At the moment, the driver of a two-horse fruit wagon was holding the dean six inches in the air by the scruff of the dean's robe and was threatening to push the dean's face through the back of the dean's head. It's peaches, right? He kept bellowing. You know what happens to peaches what lies around too long? They get bruised. Lots of things round here are going to get bruised. I am a wizard, you know said the dean, his pointy shoes dangling. If it wasn't for the fact that it would be against the rules for me to use magic in anything except a purely defensive manner, you would definitely be in a lot of trouble. What are you doing anyway? said the driver, lowering the dean so he could look suspiciously over his shoulder. Yeah, said a man trying to control the team pulling a lumber wagon. What's going on? There's people here being paid by the hour, you know. Move along in front there. The lumber driver turned in his seat and addressed the queue of carts behind him. I'm trying to, he said. It's not my fault, is it? There's a load of wizards digging up the goddamn street. The Arch-Chancellor's muddy face peered over the edge of the hole. Oh, for, for heaven's sake, Dean, he said. I told you to sort things out. Yes, I, I was just asking this gentleman to back up and go another way, said the Dean, who was afraid he was beginning to choke. The fruiterer turned him around so that he could see along the crowded streets. Ever try to bag up sixty carts all at once, he demanded. It's not easy, especially when everyone can't move because you guys have got it so's the carts are backed up all around the block and no one can move because everyone's in someone else's way. Right? The dean tried to nod. He had wondered himself about the wisdom of digging the hole at the junction of the Street of Small Gods and Broadway, 
two of the busiest streets in Ankh-Morpork. It had seemed logical at the time. Even the most persistent undead ought to stay decently buried under that amount of traffic. The only problem was that no one had thought seriously about the difficulty of digging up a couple of main streets during the busy time of day. All right, all right, all right, what's going on here? The crowd of spectators opened to admit the bulky figure of Sergeant Colon of the Watch. He moved through the people unstoppably, his stomach leading the way. When he saw the wizards waist-deep in a hole in the middle of the road, his huge red face brightened up. "'What's this, then?' he said. "'A gang of international crossroads thieves.' He was overjoyed. His long-term policing strategy was paying off. The Arch-Chancellor tipped a shovelful of Ankh-Morpork loam over his boots. "'Don't be stupid, man,' he snapped. "'This is vitally important.' "'Oh, yes, that's what they all say,' said Sergeant Colon, "'not a man to be easily steered from a particular course of thought "'once he'd got up to mental speed. "'I bet there's hundreds of villagers in heathen places like Clatch "'they'd pay good money for a nice prestigious crossroads like this, eh?' "'Ridcully looked up at him with his mouth open. Uh, "'What are you gabbling on about, officer?' he said. "'He pointed irritably to his pointy hat. "'Didn't you hear me? We're wizards.' This is, is wizard business, so if you could just sort of direct the traffic around us, there's a good chap. These peaches bruise as soon as you even look at them, said a voice behind Sergeant Colon. The old idiots have been holding us up for half an hour, said a cattle driver, who had long ago lost control of forty steers, now wandering aimlessly around the nearby street. I want some arrested. It dawned on the sergeant that he had inadvertently placed himself centre stage in a drama involving hundreds of people, some of them wizards, and all of them angry. Oh, "'What are you doing, then?' he said weakly. "'We're burying our colleague. What does it look like?' said Ridcully. Colon's eyes swivelled to an open coffin by the side of the road. Windle Poons gave him a little wave. "'But, er, uh, he's not dead, is he?' he said, his forehead wrinkling as he tried to get ahead of the situation. "'Appearances can be deceptive,' said the Arch-Chancellor. "'But he just waved to me,' said the sergeant desperately. "'So?' "'Well, it's not normal for—' "'It's all right, sergeant,' said Windle. Sergeant Colon sidled closer to the coffin. "'Didn't I see you throw yourself into the river last night?' he said, out of the corner of his mouth. "'Yes, you were very helpful,' said Windle. "'And then you threw yourself sort of out again,' said the sergeant. "'I'm afraid so.' "'But you were down there for ages.' "'Well, it was very dark, you see. I, I, I couldn't find the steps.' Sergeant Colon had to concede the logic of this. "'Well, I suppose you must be dead, then,' he said. "'No one could stay down there who wasn't dead.' "'This is it.' Windle agreed. Only, why are you waving and talking? said Colon. The senior wrangler poked his head out of the hole. It's not unknown for a dead body to move and make noises after death, Sergeant, he volunteered. It's all down to involuntary muscular spasms. Actually, um, the senior wrangler is right, said Windle Poons. I read that somewhere. Oh, Sergeant Colon looked around. Right, he said uncertainly. Well, fair enough, I suppose. OK, we're done, said the Arch-Chancellor, scrambling out of the hole. It's deep enough. Come on, Windle. Down you go. 
I really am very touched, you know, said Windle, lying back in the coffin. It was quite a good one from the mortuary in Elm Street. The Arch-Chancellor had let him choose it himself. Ridcully picked up a mallet. Windle sat up again. Everyone's going to so much trouble. Yes, yes, right, said Ridcully, looking around. Now, uh, who's got the stake? Everyone looked at the bursar. The bursar looked unhappy. He fumbled in a bag. I couldn't get any, he said. The Arch-Chancellor put his hand over his eyes. All right, he said quietly. You know, I'm, I'm not surprised. Not surprised at all. What did you get? Lamb chops? A nice piece of pork? Celery, said the bursar. It's his nerves, said the dean quickly. Celery, said the Arch-Chancellor, his self-control rigid enough to bend horseshoes around. Right. The bursar handed him a soggy green bundle. Ridcully took it. Now, Windle, he said, I'd like you to imagine that what I have in my hand... It's quite all right, said Windle. I'm not actually sure I can hammer... I don't mind, I assure you, said Windle. You don't. The principle is sound, said Windle. If you'll just hand me the celery, but think hammering a stake, that's probably sufficient. That's, that's very decent of you said Ridcully. That shows a very proper spirit. Esprit de corpse, said the senior wrangler. Ridcully glared at him and thrust the celery dramatically towards Windle. Take that, he said. Thank you, said Windle. And now let's put the lid on and go and have some lunch, said Ridcully. Don't worry, Windle, it's bound to work. Today is the last day of the rest of your life. Windle lay in the darkness, listening to the hammering. There was a thump and a muffled imprecation against the dean for not holding the end properly, and then the patter of soil on the lid getting fainter and more distant. After a while, a distant rumbling suggested that the commerce of the city was being resumed. He could even hear muffled voices. He banged on the coffin lid. "'Can you keep it down?' he demanded. "'There's people down here trying to be dead.' He heard the voices stop. There was the sound of feet hurrying away. Windle lay there for some time. He didn't know how long. He tried stopping all functions, but that just made things uncomfortable. Why was dying so difficult? Other people seemed to manage it, even without practice. Also, his leg itched. He tried to reach down to scratch it, and his hand touched something small and irregularly shaped. He managed to get his fingers around it. It felt like a bundle of matches. In a coffin? Did anyone think he'd smoke a quiet cigar to pass the time? After a certain amount of effort, he managed to push one boot off with the other boot and ease it up until he could just grasp it. This gave him a rough surface to strike the match on. Sulphurous light filled his tiny oblong world. There was a tiny scrap of cardboard pinned to the inside of the lid. He read it. He read it again. The match went out. He lit another one just to check that what he had read really did exist. The message was still as strange, even third time round. Dead? Depressed? Feel like starting it all again? Then why not come along to the Fresh Start Club, Thursday, 12pm, 668 Elm Street. Everybody welcome.
The second match went out, taking the last of the oxygen with it. Windle lay in the dark for a while, considering his next move and finishing off the celery. Who'd have thought it? And it suddenly dawned on the late Windle Poons that there was no such thing as somebody else's problem, and that just when you thought the world had pushed you aside, it turned out to be full of strangeness. He knew from experience that the living never found out half of what was really happening, because they were too busy being the living. The onlooker sees most of the game, he told himself. It was the living who ignored the strange and wonderful, because life was too full of the boring and mundane. But it was strange. It had things in it like screws that unscrewed themselves, and little written messages to the dead. He resolved to find out what was going on. And then, if death wasn't going to come to him, he'd go to death. He had his rights, after all. Yeah. He'd lead the biggest missing person hunt of all time. Windle grinned in the darkness. Missing believed death. Today was the first day of the rest of his life, and Ankh Morpork lay at his feet. Well, metaphorically. The only way was up. He reached up, felt for the card in the dark, and pulled it free. He stuck it between his teeth. Windle Poons braced his feet against the end of the box, pushed his hands past his head, and heaved. The soggy loam of Ankh Morpork moved slightly. Windle paused, out of habit, to take a breath, and realised that there was no point. He pushed again. The end of the coffin splintered. Windle pulled it towards him and tore the solid pine like paper. He was left with a piece of plank which would have been a totally useless spade for anyone with unzombie-like strength. Turning onto his stomach, tucking the earth around him with his impromptu spade and ramming it back with his feet, Windle Poons dug his way towards a fresh start. Picture a landscape, a plain with rolling curves. It's late summer in the octarine grass country below the towering peaks of the high ram tops, and the predominant colours are umber and gold. Heat sears the landscape. Grasshoppers sizzle as in a frying pan. Even the air is too hot to move. It's the hottest summer in living memory, and in these parts that's a long, long time. Picture a figure on a horseback moving slowly along a road that's an inch deep in dust between fields of corn that already promise an unusually rich harvest. Picture a fence of baked dead wood. There's a notice pinned to it. The sun has faded the letters, but they're still readable. Picture a shadow falling across the notice. You can almost hear it reading both the words. There's a track leading off the road towards a small group of bleached buildings. Picture dragging footsteps. Picture a door open. Picture a cool, dark room glimpsed through the open doorway. This isn't a room that people live in a lot. It's a room for people who live outdoors but have to come inside sometimes when it gets dark. It's a room for harnesses and dogs. A room where oilskins are hung up to dry. There's a beer barrel by the door. There are flagstones on the floor and along the ceiling beams hooks for bacon. There's a scrubbed table that thirty hungry men could sit down at. There are no men. There are no dogs. There is no beer. There is no bacon. There was a silence after the knocking and then the flap-flap of slippers on flagstones. Eventually, a skinny old woman with a face the colour and texture of a walnut peered around the door. Yes, she said. The notice said, man wanted. Did it? Did it? That's been up there since before last winter. I am sorry. You need no help. The wrinkled face looked at him thoughtfully. I can't pay more than sixpence a week, mind, it said. 
The tall figure looming against the sunlight appeared to consider this. Yes, it said eventually. I wouldn't even know where to start your working, neither. We haven't had any proper help here for three years. I just hire the lazy good-for-nothings from the village when I want them. Yes? You don't mind, then? I have a horse. The old woman peered around the stranger. In the yard was the most impressive horse she'd ever seen. Her eyes narrowed. And that's your horse, is it? Yes. With all that silver on the harness and everything? Yes. And you want to work for sixpence a week? Yes. The old woman pursed her lips. She looked from the stranger to the horse and to the dilapidation around the farm. She appeared to reach a decision, possibly on the lines that someone who owned no horses probably didn't have much to fear from a horse thief. You are to sleep in the barn, understand? she said. Sleep? Yes, of course. Yes, I will have to sleep. Couldn't have you in the house anyway, it wouldn't be right. The barn will be adequate, I assure you. But you can come into the house for your meals. Thank you. My name's Miss Flitworth. Yes. She waited. I expect you have a name too, she prompted. Yes, that's right. She waited again. Well? I'm sorry? What is your name? The stranger stared at her for a moment and then looked around wildly. Come on, said Miss Flitworth. I ain't employing no one without no name. Mr... The figure stared upwards. Mr. Sky? No one's called Mr. Sky. Mr. Door? She nodded. Could be, could be Mr. Door. There was a chap called Doors I knew once. Yeah, Mr. Door. And your first name? Don't tell me you haven't got one of those too. You've got to be a Bill or a Tom or a Bruce or one of those names. Yes. What? One of those. Which one? Uh, the first one. You're a Bill? Yes. Miss Flitworth rolled her eyes. All right, Bill Sky, she said. Door. Eh, sorry, all right, Bill Door. Call me Bill. And you can call me Miss Flitworth. I expect you want some dinner. I would. Ah, yes. The meal of the evening. Yes. You look half starved, to tell the truth. More than half, really. She squinted at the figure. Somehow it was very hard to be certain what Bill Dorr looked like, or even remember the exact sound of his voice. Clearly he was there, and clearly he had spoken. Otherwise, why did you remember anything at all? There's a lot of people in these parts as don't use the name they were born with, she said. I always say there's nothing to be gained by going round asking personal questions. I suppose you can work, Mr Bill Doer. I'm getting the hay in off the high meadows and there'll be a lot of work come harvest. Can you use a scythe? Bill Doer seemed to meditate on the question for some time, then he said... I think the answer to that is a definite yes, Miss Flitworth.
cut-me-own-throat dibbler also never saw the sense in asking personal questions, at least insofar as they applied to him and were along the lines of, are these things yours to sell? But no one appeared to be coming forward to berate him for selling off their property, and that was good enough for him. He'd sold more than a thousand of the little globes this morning, and he'd had to employ a troll to keep up a flow from the mysterious source of supply in the cellar. People loved them. The principle of operation was laughably simple and easily graspable by the average Ankh-Morpork citizen after a few false starts. If you gave the globe a shake, a cloud of little white snowflakes swirled up in the liquid inside and settled delicately on a tiny model of a famous Ankh-Morpork landmark. In some globes, it was the university or the Tower of Art or the Brass Bridge or the Patrician's Palace. The detail was amazing. And then there were no more left. Well, thought Throat, that's a shame. Since they hadn't technically belonged to him, although morally, of course, morally, they were his, he couldn't actually complain. Well, he could complain, of course, but only under his breath and not to anybody specific. Maybe it was all for the best, come to think of it. Stack them high, sell them cheap. Get them off your hands. It made it much easier to spread them in a gesture of injured innocence when you said, Who, me? They were really pretty, though, except, strangely enough, for the writing. It was on the bottom of each globe in shaky, amateurish letters, as if done by someone who had never seen writing before and was trying to copy some down. On the bottom of every globe, below the intricate little snowflake-covered building, were the words, A pre from ankh more pork Mustrum Ridcully, Arch-Chancellor of Unseen University, was a shameless auto-condimenter. Someone who will put certainly salt and probably pepper on any meal you put in front of them, whatever it is, and regardless of how much it's got on it already, and regardless of how it tastes. Behavioural psychiatrists working for fast food outlets around the universe have saved billions of whatever the local currency is by noting the auto-condimenting phenomenon and advising their employers to leave seasoning out in the first place. This is really true. He had his own special cruet put in front of him at every meal. It consisted of salt, three types of pepper, four types of mustard, four types of vinegar, 15 different types of chutney, and his special favourite, wow-wow sauce, a mixture of mature scumble, pickled cucumbers, capers, mustard, mangoes, figs, grated wahoonie, anchovy essence, a safetida, and significantly sulphur and saltpetre for added potency. Ridcully inherited the formula from his uncle, who, after half a pint of sauce on a big meal one evening, had a charcoal biscuit to settle his stomach, lit his pipe, and disappeared in mysterious circumstances, although his shoes were found on the roof the following summer. There was cold mutton for lunch. Mutton went well with wow-wow sauce. On the night of Ridcully Senior's death, for example, it had gone at least three miles. Mustrum tied his napkin behind his neck, rubbed his hands together and reached out. The cruet moved. He reached out again. It slid away. Ridcully sighed. All right, you fellows, he said. No magic at table, you know the rules. Who's playing, silly buggers? The other senior wizards stared at him. I, I don't think we can play it any more, said the bursar, who at the moment was only occasionally bouncing off the sides of sanity. I, I think we lost some of the pieces. He looked around, giggled, and went back to trying to cut his mutton with a spoon. The other wizards were keeping knives out of his way at present. The entire cruet floated up into the air and started to spin slowly, then it exploded. 
The wizards, dripping vinegar and expensive spices, watched it owlishly. It was probably the sauce, the dean ventured. It was definitely going a bit critical last night. Something dropped on his head and landed in his lunch. It was a black iron screw, several inches long. Another one mildly concussed the bursar. After a second or two, a third landed point down on the table by the Arch-Chancellor's hand and stuck there. The wizards turned their eyes upwards. The great hall was lit in the evenings by one massive chandelier, although the word so often associated with glittering prismatic glassware seemed inappropriate for the huge, heavy, black, tallow-encrusted thing that hung from the ceiling like a threatening overdraft. It could hold a thousand candles. It was directly over the senior wizard's table. Another screw tinkled onto the floor by the fireplace. The Arch-Chancellor cleared his throat. <clears> throat> Run, he suggested. The chandelier dropped. Bits of table and crockery smashed into the walls. Lumps of lethal tallow the size of a man's head whirred through the windows. A whole candle, propelled out of the wreckage at a freak velocity, was driven several inches into a door. The Arch-Chancellor disentangled himself from the remains of his chair. Burser! he yelled. The bursar was exhumed from the fireplace. Um, yes, Arch-Chancellor, he quavered. What was the meaning of that? Ridcully's hat rose from his head. It was a basic floppy-brimmed pointy wizarding hat, but adapted to the Arch-Chancellor's outgoing lifestyle. Fishing flies were stuck in it. A very small pistol crossbow was shoved in the hatband in case he saw something to shoot while out jogging, and Mustram Ridcully had found that the pointy bit was just the right size for a small bottle of Bentinck's very old peculiar brandy. He was quite attached to his hat, but it was no longer attached to him. It drifted gently across the room. There was a faint but distinct gurgling noise. The Arch-Chancellor leapt to his feet. Bugger that, he roared. That stuff's nine dollars a fifth. He made a leap for the hat, missed, and kept on going until he drifted to a halt several feet above the ground. The bursar raised a hand nervously. Possibly woodworm? he said. If there is any more of this, growled Ridcully, any more at all, do you hear, I shall get very angry. He was dropped to the floor at the same time as the big doors opened. One of the college porters bustled in, followed by a squad of the patricians' palace guard. The guard captain looked the arch-chancellor up and down with the expression of one to whom the word civilian is pronounced in the same general tones as cockroach. You the head chap, he said. The Arch-Chancellor smoothed his robe and tried to straighten his beard. I am the, the Arch-Chancellor of this, this university, yes, he said. The guard captain looked curiously around the hall. The students were all cowering down the far end. Splashed food covered most of the wall to ceiling height. Bits of furniture lay around the wreckage of the chandelier like trees around ground zero of a meteor strike. Then he spoke with all the distaste of someone whose own further education had stopped at age nine, but who'd heard stories. Indulging in a bit of youthful high spirits, were we? He said. Throwing a few bread rolls around, that kind of thing. May I ask the meaning of this intrusion? Said Ridcully, coldly. The guard captain leaned on his spear. Well, he said, it's like this. The patrician is barricaded in his bedroom on account of the furniture in the palace is zooming around the place like you wouldn't believe. 
the cooks won't even go back in the kitchen on account of what's happening in there. The wizards tried not to look at the spear's head. It was starting to unscrew itself. Anyway, the captain went on, oblivious to the faint metallic noises. The patrician calls through the keyhole, see, and says to me, Douglas, I wonder if you wouldn't mind nipping down to the university and asking the head man if he would be so good as to step up here if he's not too busy. But I can always go back and tell him you're engaging in a bit of student humour, if you like. The spearhead was almost off the shaft. You listening to me, said the captain suspiciously. Hmm? Uh, what? said the Arch-Chancellor, tearing his eyes away from the spinning metal. Oh, oh, yes, yes, well, I can assure you, my man, that we are not the cause of... Uh, pardon? The spearhead fell on my foot. Did it? said Ridcully, innocently. The guard captain hopped up and down. Listen, are you bloody hocus-pocus merchants coming or not? he said between bounces. The boss is not very happy. Not very happy at all. A great formless cloud of life drifted across the disc world like water building up behind a dam when the sluice gates are shut. With no death to take the life force away when it was finished with, it had nowhere else to go. Here and there it earthed itself in random poltergeist activity like flickers of summer lightning before a big storm. Everything that exists yearns to live. That's what the cycle of life is all about. That's the engine that drives the great biological pumps of evolution. Everything tries to inch its way up the tree, clawing or tentacling or sliming its way up to the next niche until it gets to the very top, which on the whole never seems to have been worth all that effort. Everything that exists yearns to live. Even things that are not alive, things that have a kind of sub-life, a metaphorical life, an almost life, and now, in the same way that a sudden hot spell brings forth unnatural and exotic blooms, there was something about the little globes. You had to pick them up and give them a shake, watch the pretty snowflakes swirl and glitter, and then take them home and put them on the mantelpiece, and then forget about them. The relationship between the university and the patrician, absolute ruler and nearly benevolent dictator of Ankh-Morpork, was a complex and subtle one. The wizards held that, as servants of a higher truth, they were not subject to the mundane laws of the city. The patrician said that, indeed, this was the case, but they would bloody well pay their taxes like everyone else. The wizards said that, as followers of the light of wisdom, they owed allegiance to no mortal man. The patrician said that this may well be true, but they also owed a city tax of $200 per head per annum payable quarterly. The wizards said that the university stood on magical ground and was therefore exempt from taxation and anyway you couldn't put a tax on knowledge. The patrician said you could. It was $200 per capita. If per capita was a problem, decapita could be arranged. The wizards said that the university had never paid taxes to the civil authority. The patrician said he was not proposing to remain civil for long. The wizards said, what about easy terms? The patrician said he was talking about easy terms. They wouldn't want to know about the hard terms. The wizards said that there was a ruler back in, oh, it would be the century of the dragonfly, who had tried to tell the university what to do. The patrician could come and have a look at him if he liked. The patrician said that he would. He truly would. 
In the end, it was agreed that while the wizards, of course, paid no taxes, they would nevertheless make an entirely voluntary donation of, oh, let's say, $200 per head, without prejudice, mutatis mutandis, no strings attached, to be used strictly for non-militaristic and environmentally acceptable purposes. It was this dynamic interplay of power blocks that made Ankh-Morpork such an interesting, stimulating and above all bloody dangerous place in which to live. Many songs have been written about the bustling metropolis, the most famous of course being Ankh-Morpork, Ankh-Morpork, so good they named it Ankh-Morpork. But others have included Carry Me Away From Old Ankh-Morpork, I Fear I'm Going Back To Ankh-Morpork, and the old favourite Ankh-Morpork Malady. Senior wizards did not often get out and about on what Welcome to Ankh-Morpork, probably called the thronged highways and intimate byways of the city, but it was instantly obvious that something was wrong. It wasn't that cobblestones didn't sometimes fly through the air, but usually someone had thrown them. They didn't normally float by themselves. A door burst open and a suit of clothes came out, a pair of shoes dancing along behind it, a hat floating a few inches above the empty collar. Close behind them came a skinny man endeavouring to do with a hastily snatched flannel what normally it took a whole pair of trousers to achieve. You come back here, he screamed as they rounded the corner. I still owe seven dollars for you. A second pair of trousers scurried out into the street and hurried after them. The wizards clustered together like a frightened animal with five pointed heads and ten legs, wondering who was going to be the first to comment. That's bloody amazing, said the Arch-Chancellor. Hmm said the dean, trying to imply that he saw more amazing things than that all the time, and that in drawing attention to mere clothing running around by itself, the Arch-Chancellor was letting down the whole tone of wizardry. Oh, come on. I don't know many tailors round here who'd throw in a second pair of pants for a seven-dollar suit, said Ridcully. Oh, said the dean. If it comes past again, try to trip it up so as I can have a look at the label. A bedsheet squeezed through an upper window and flapped away across the rooftops. You know, said the lecturer in recent runes, trying to keep his voice calm and relaxed, I don't think this is magic. It doesn't feel like magic. The senior wrangler fished in one of the deep pockets of his robe. There was a muffled clanking and rustling, and the occasional croak. Eventually he produced a dark blue glass cube. It had a dial on the front. You carry one of them around in your pocket, said the dean, a valuable instrument like that. "'What the, um, hell is it?' said Ridcully. "'Amazingly sensitive magical measuring device,' said the dean. "'Measures the density of a magical field. A thormometer.' The senior wrangler proudly held the cube aloft and pressed a button on the side. A needle on the dial wobbled around a bit and stopped. "'See?' said the senior wrangler. "'Just natural background, representing no hazard to the public.' "'Speak up.' said the Arch-Chancellor. I, I can't hear you above the noise. Crashes and screams rose from the houses on either side of the street. Mrs. Evadne Cake was a medium, verging on small. It wasn't a demanding job. Not many people who died in Ankh-Morpork showed much inclination to chat to their surviving relatives. Put as many mystic dimensions between you and them as possible. That was their motto. She filled in between engagements with dressmaking and church work. Any church. Mrs Cake was very keen on religion, at least on Mrs Cake's terms. Evadne Cake was not one of those bead curtain and incense mediums, partly because she didn't hold with incense, but mainly because she was actually very good at her profession. 
A good conjurer can astound you with a simple box of matches and a perfectly ordinary deck of cards. If you would care to examine them, sir, you will see they are a perfectly ordinary deck of cards. He doesn't need the finger-nipping, folding tables and complicated, collapsible top hats of lesser prestidigitators. And in the same way, Mrs Cake didn't need much in the way of props. Even the industrial-grade crystal ball was only there as a sop to her customers. Mrs Cake could actually read the future in a bowl of porridge. It would say, for example, that you would shortly undergo a painful bowel movement. She could have a revelation in a pan full of frying bacon. She had spent a lifetime dabbling in the spirit world, except that in Evadne's case dabbling wasn't really apposite. She wasn't the dabbling kind. It was more a case of stamping into the spirit world and demanding to see the manager. And while making her breakfast and cutting up dog food for Ludmilla, she started to hear voices. They were very faint. It wasn't that they were on the verge of hearing, because they were the kind of voices that ordinary ears can't hear. They were inside her head. Watch what you're doing. Where am I? Quit shoving there. And then they faded again. They were replaced by a squeaking noise from the next room. She pushed aside her boiled egg and waddled through the bead curtain. The sound was coming from under the severe, no-nonsense hessian cover of her crystal ball. Evadne went back into the kitchen and selected a heavy frying pan. She waved it through the air once or twice, getting the heft of it, and then crept towards the crystal under its hood. Raising the pan, ready to swat anything unpleasant, she twitched aside the cover. The ball was turning slowly round and round on its stand. Evadne watched it for a while, then she drew the curtains, eased her weight down on the chair, took a deep breath and said, Is there anybody there? Most of the ceiling fell in. After several minutes and a certain amount of struggle, Mrs Cake managed to get her head free. Ludmilla! There were soft footsteps in the passageway, and then something came in from the backyard. It was clearly, even attractively female in general shape, and wore a perfectly ordinary dress. It was also apparently suffering from a case of superfluous hair that not all the delicate pink razors in the world could erase. Also, teeth and fingernails were being worn long this season. You expected the whole thing to growl, but it spoke in a pleasant and definitely human voice. Mother, I'm under here. The fearsome Ludmilla lifted up a huge joist and tossed it lightly aside. What happened? Didn't you have your premonition switched on? I turned it off to speak to the baker. Cor, that gave me a turn. I'll make you a cup of tea, shall I? Now then, you know you always crush his teacups when it's your time? I'm getting better at it, said Ludmilla. There's a good girl, but I'll do it myself, thanks all the same. Mrs Cake stood up, brushed the plaster dust off her apron and said, They shouted. They shouted. All at once. End of CD 2